interest in my Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, <clears throat> boy, <clears throat> excuse me, who scorned his perfect, his perfect love. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be <clears throat> that you, my God, would die for me? Let's just read the whole song. <clears throat> you left your father's home thrown above. This is First John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. This is the song it's all about. So free and infinite your grace that Neil tried to help us understand. Emptied yourself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's us. <clears throat> Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Boldly I come before your throne. First John chapter 3 and 2. To claim your mercy immense and free. No greater love will e'er be known for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Say it with me, this last line. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? First John chapter 4. Starting in, we're going to look at starting in verse 7, but we're going to look at 12. <clears throat> I want to ask you, if you have your phones out and you don't have it on the Bible, if you have it on Facebook or texting me, nothing right now. I have mine right here. <clears throat> or some other app to give me 25 minutes. Just give me 25 minutes. Turn it off for 25 minutes. If you have your Bible, keep it open. And some of you are saying, you, you, never, you always speak longer than 25 minutes. I know. I'm just asking for 25, the first 25. And then in my human weakness, I always shoot for 25 minutes, believe it or not. Stop laughing. <laughs> 25 minutes. And in my human weakness, I go beyond that. And so I apologize and, and thank you for your patience. But give me the first 25 minutes. And then you can go back to Facebook if, it's, if you need to, if it's that important. But I want to look at this passage where we have, I've been, I have encouraged you to begin to memorize it. And some of you have. You begin to look at this passage and begin to memorize it. But not only memorize, but learn to apply it to your life. And the applications are personal. And at the end, I'm going to try and, you know, I'm going to say the same thing, actually. I can give you hints generically how to apply this to your own life, but you have to look at your life. You have to look at your relationships, your hurts and your struggles and all the other things that go on in your life and say to the person, to this person, I must love in this way. I need to learn to love this person in this way. And so we've looked at verses 7 through 10 so far. It calls for self-examination. It, it calls us to begin to understand this common word, love. We use it every day, but it's defined in the most uncommon way. 
And so we look at this first two verses, verse 7 and 8, and I, I entitled this, The Greatest Test of All, Love One Another. Dear friends, let us love one another. In fact, go ahead, let's, let's read the scripture together, if you want to. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so I call this the greatest test of all. And that word love that I have there in yellow, the, the neat thing about the Greek language is that it can emphasize something. How do we emphasize something in English? We underline it. We highlight it with, uh, with uh, uh, yellow. We uh, italicize it. We bold it. Some way, you know, we, we, when we want to make a point in writing, we, that's what we do. Well, the Greek language could place a word in a certain area, and it's like John is saying, I want you to pay attention to this. This is the word that I want you to hear. And he says, because if he had said, whoever does not love, if that was the emphasis, you would be thinking of yourself. Oh, that's me. Whoever does not love does not know God. Instead, he says, whoever does not love does not know God because, listen, God is Boom, love. He wants you to focus on that. He wants you to know that, that uh, God is love. That's where he wants you to put your mind. And so we looked at this word, going back to verse 1 of this chapter, where it says, test the spirits. And the world, and I, I said this is the testing of the spirits between what the world is telling you, the spirit of the world, and the spirit of God. There's two different spirits in, in that, that exist, God's spirit and the world's spirit. And both are yelling at you. Both are saying something to you. What are they saying? And they're talking to you. And so we test it because the world is telling you how to think, what to do. It does it through, through the radio. It does this through television. It does it through your uh, acquaintances, all different ways, books and newspapers and magazines and Internet. All that is the world calling you out and saying, hey, do this, do this, do this, think this way. And we have this co constant barrage of information that much of it is misinformation. It's not true or it's partially true. So the greatest test when we come down to it is the test of love. How do you love one another? And then we have to think, well, how do I define love? Well, John helps us there. He defines it for us, not by the world standard, not by the way the world defines love, but by God. And all of you know love songs, and you sing love songs, and you've, you've said, I love you, and all that, but what do you mean? And a lot of times those songs are the misinformation. They're not, that's not really what God's love is all about. And so this greatest test, love one another, defined by God, because God is love. To know God is to know love. And so it's so important that we learn the character of God, learn who he is. How do you learn the character of God? Through the person of Jesus, of course. And it's not optional. For the Christian, this is not an option. This is not something you can maybe do. It's not like going to church. Sometimes we look at that as optional. Okay, Wednesday night Bible class. <laughs> That's optional. Or whatever. But this is not optional. Love is not optional. It's the only way to live. He said it here. Whoever does not love does not know God. If you don't love the way God loves, the way God defined it, you don't know God. 
That's what John is telling us here. That's what God is telling us. And then we move to verses 9 and 10. And let's read this together. This is how God, I should slow down, excuse me. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we saw this love brought to light. And interestingly here, two, two things I want to point out. That word he, that's emphatic. That's an emphasis. This is love, not that we love God. That's not the emphasis here. It's not saying how poorly we loved, even though, even though that's true. But here's the emphasis. He loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That's the demonstration of his love. And this word live is really interesting. And I won't go into any detail, but to say this. That word live is in a tense. That means this. It means to do it effectively or successfully. He sent his son into the world that we might live. And this is not theory. This is not in the sweet by and by. All right? A lot of times we think about we will live eternally in the sweet by and by. Yes, that's true. But this is talking about right now we will successfully walk through this life. We will live a successful and effective life if we learn to love. That's what he's saying. So when he says that you might live, he's just not talking about so that your sins will be washed away. That's the beginning of it. But that you'll really live. That you'll really have a life. That you'll really effectively, successfully live your life. Because God is interested in you right now. Right now. And how you live right now. This amazing thing is, is that God love was sent to spiritually dead people. He said that we might live through him. This is a demonstration. It's, the, it's a display of God's love. And the illustration I gave was this, this, this uh, picture of a diamonds on display. It was manifested to us. It was displayed before us. It was demonstrated uh, to us in the sacrificial uh, in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And this is the definition and the demonstration of love. What is love? What is love? Well, here John says, look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he did. Look at how he sacrificed himself for you. That's love. And so he gave it to us that we might live through him. We spiritually dead people will successfully, effectively live for him now. And this God love was sent to the unlovable and the unlovely. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? If we can ever get that into our hearts, really understand that, it will begin to change your lives. And so now we come to verse 11. It's as far as I could get this week. Sorry. As far as I could get verse 11, the question that, that comes to my mind is how healthy are you spiritually? Let's read verse 11 together. It's really short. Dear friends, 
Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You know, spirituality is not for the elite few. We've been programmed to think that way. We've been programmed to divide up people into different categories, whatever those categories might be. But when we come to spirituality, we have certain people that are spiritual and then certain people that are not spiritual or not so spiritual. We look at leaders sometimes and we say, well, you know, or certain people say, oh, they're, they're holy, they're righteous people, they're more righteous than us, they're more holy than I am. And even this question, how, how healthy are you spiritually, causes me to think when I hear that, is, is you have the really spiritual person here, and then you have me who falls short. I'm not spiritual like other people. You know, when I was a teenager, I actually remember being a teenager. It wasn't that long ago. The spiritual teenagers, at least in my generation, were the odd people. Okay? I don't know about today. But spiritual people, when I grew up, in my thinking, they were the odd people. They were the different people. They were the nerds. They were uncool. All right? But they were spiritual. But the cool people weren't spiritual. It was just those weird people that were. And so... I want us to get away from that thinking because that's not biblical thinking. That's the world's way of dividing people up. What happens when we start thinking about that, we, we go on to say, well, how can I be more spiritual? I want to be spiritual. I want to be like God. And so we start doing things. We pray more. We pray longer. We read our Bibles. Uh, we do something really spiritual like going out and knocking doors or something else that gets us out of our comfort zone. And then when we start doing these things, if you're like me, you begin to feel more spiritual. Well, I've been reading my Bible two hours a day now or whatever it is. Um, I, I look down on other people who aren't as spiritual as I am. Well, I get up at 5 a.m. to study my Bible. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have to the collection place. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like those around me that... Do you know the passage? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we, we, we just, we don't even realize how quickly we fall into that trap of being the Pharisee who looks, who's doing all the right things. Oh, he's doing all the right things. He's praying. He's fasting. He's giving a tenth of everything he has. And then he looks at someone and says, and I thank you. I'm not like that person over there, that sinner over there. And what happens so quickly, so easily, we become me-centered. Instead of God-centered. And John over and over draws us back and says, look at, don't, don't focus on yourself, focus on him. And this is not to say, don't misunderstand, that there's no maturity in spirituality. There is. There's degrees of maturity. There's no division of regular, go-to-work, blue-collar Christians and the saints who have risen above all the worries of the world. The Bible teaches we're all saints. We're all set apart ones. We're all, we have all been made holy. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've been buried into Christ, and you've been raised to walk in new life, you are spiritual. You, are, you have been made holy. And John says it this way, the first word of this verse. John says it this way, beloved. Loved ones of God. 
The NIV says, dear friends, which I think is a poor translation, my opinion. I think what he is saying is, you loved ones of God. This is who you are. And I'm going to put that last emphasis on it because this is the last time that John's going to use this word. He's going to remind us that we're loved of God. But this is the last time he's going to remind us. I think this is six or seven times. He says, you are loved of God. You are my child. You know, the ones who get up at 5 a.m. to read the Bible are no more loved than those who sleep until noon. You're not more loved because you're reading your Bible two hours a day compared to the one that's playing the video game two hours a day. Now, I'm not promoting sleeping into noon. And I'm not promoting playing video games all hours of the night. But what I am saying is this. You are loved of God. You are His child. And He calls you, if you're doing those things, to grow up. To wake up. To open your eyes. To see what He's done for you. To mature. And He tells you how to do that. As I said, there's different degrees of spiritual maturity. We're all beloved, but some of us are more grown up than others. And it's not necessarily due to the amount of time you've been a Christian. You know, for some we think, well, that person's been a Christian 50 years. He should be more mature. And yes, he should. But this passage is getting each of us to examine ourselves and say, how healthy am I spiritually? And like physical health, there's times that as we grow older, our we wane in our, uh, in, our, uh, in our health. I've noticed that with myself. The older I get, I start feeling things physically that hurt, that used, used to not hurt. Things that used to work don't work anymore. I, can't lift, I still can't lift my arm. That ah, There you go, got it up. Because I hurt that shoulder. Back when I was 18, I'd hurt it and keep on going. Spiritually, we do the same thing. We go into... Ups and downs. You might have a spiritual cold right now. I'm going to try and fix it. I'm going to show you how to do that. Because spiritual health is based in what you do and what you know. Knowing is essential. I don't think anyone could say to me that I don't think a, a constant, steady, deep study of God's Word is important. I think you know me well enough to know that. Studying God's Word is essential. And John reminds us over and over, I want you to know this. I want you to know this. You should know this, he says. The importance of knowing Christ, knowing what He did, knowing what is taught about repentance and baptism and the Holy Spirit. You cannot overstate that. The importance of Bible study and growth and understanding is essential to spiritual maturity. But it doesn't stop there. It starts there. You know, you can take a written test. All the things that we've learned so far. The glorious, the glorious things that we've learned. We can know and understand everything about the sacrificial death of Christ. What His resurrection means. But if we fail in this practical area, in what we do, and how we live out our lives... We will be at best spiritually sick, spiritually anemic, 
spiritually weak. This practical part is as essential as the knowledge. We have to have both. It's not an either or. Spiritual thinking is shown by what you know. Your spiritual health is seen by what you do. And both are equally important. They both support each other. The the best illustration I can come up with this is something like this. What's more important, your veins or the blood that flows through it? They're both essential. The blood needs the veins, and the veins need the blood. They need each other. And so what you know is essential. You need that. And what you do is essential, equally essential. You know, the grandest thoughts of the mind can be found in the New Testament. And I love studying, and, I, and I've said I, I thank you for the time that I'm, I'm granted to study God's Word. A God who loves, just pondering on that. Whose nature it is to love, who is love, who demonstrated that love in a sacrificial death. These are mountaintop experiences, mountaintop thoughts. But Christianity doesn't stop there. It starts there. It continues in how these great truths change your life. It becomes very, very practical. Where do you measure your spiritual health on a daily basis? Is blue jean living, tennis shoe walking, grease under your fingernails, butting heads, knocking, locking horns of life? What do these wonderful, lofty, awe-inspiring concepts mean at 3 a.m. when the baby's crying? 5 p.m. when you're stuck in traffic. 6 p.m. when you're hurrying to get the kids to practice. Or you sit down to supper in a chaotic storm. What does it mean when you're feeling badly? Sick with a cold or sick child or spouse. Or maybe your spouse is exhibiting a great deal of impatience. What's your spiritual health during those times? Right now, not so. it's pretty easy. Pretty easy. Not real easy, but pretty easy. But when you get out into life and all these things are going on, your response to these things in life is a measurement of your spiritual health. I was talking to a father, and this is a while back, who decided that he was going to get up at 5 a.m. and read his Bible. Wonderful thing. He was, a very, he was, is a very busy person, works hard, loves his family, loves folks, but he's very busy. And he said, you know, I need to get up early to read my Bible because as the day goes on, it just, I, it just, I, can't, I don't have time. Too many phone calls, too many things going on. In the evening, you know, all these things are going on. First day he got up at 5 a.m., opened up his Bible. He had hardly started reading, and his little three-year-old comes into the room. She heard her daddy in, in the kitchen, and she wanted to talk at 5 o'clock in the morning. Irritated him. That's okay. First day was fine. The second day, he's like, okay, second day. Same thing happened. He gets up at 5. He's going to be so righteous. He's going to read his Bible. He's going to study it. He has his notepad. He's going to take notes about all the things he learned. And that little three-year-old shows up again. And that's my question. What do you do when you're in the middle of a Bible study and someone calls you? 
that irritating person that you wish wouldn't, that knock on the door, that traffic jam you're in. This is the practical part of your Christian walk. This is not theory. This is where you put this into practice. And if you miss this, you've, you're, you've missed the essential half. You've got the knowledge, but you're not, not putting it into practice. Spiritual health is based in this word, so loved. These two little words, so loved us. It means in this way, in this manner, this much. And as I thought about this and, and, and uh, read this over and over, I thought, this has emotion tied to it. He didn't just love us. He, lo- he so loved us. And I got thinking, what's the best way I can illustrate this? And I thought about that man with his little girl. And I said, that's it. If you are a father of little girls or a grandfather of little girls, or if you were, once were a little girl, I hope you had a father that so loved you. And I know some of you, maybe you didn't. But I want you to know that God so loves you. But you know, when your little girl, she's growing up and you're watching her and you love her. Oh, you love her so much. And she starts growing up and she goes, starts going through these awkward phases. And they start, you know, trying to do things and they mess up. They're beginning to mature, but they're doing it very awkwardly. They're on the fringe of the popular kids sometimes, or maybe even if they are the popular kids, they're, they're trying to maintain that. They not, may not be the smartest or the prettiest or the most popular. And when they mess up and when they stumble and when they fall and those tears come, what do you want? Daddy, what does daddies want? They want, they just take them and they want them to know, not that I love you, but I so love you. I so love you. That's what they're trying to get across. I love you, yes, but I so love you. What does it matter that that boy doesn't like you? I don't like him either. I love you. So love you. He's not worth your time. Also, I know you wanted to make the team. I know you wanted to be a cheerleader. I know you wanted to whatever. That's not, that's not the most important thing. I so love you. I love you. And that's what God is trying to get back to us. He's trying to recenter us. We're awkward. We mess up. We stumble. We fail. We don't think we deserve love. We don't even think we are loved sometimes. We're immature. We don't understand much. We're spiritually awkward in our expressions and what we do. We wish we could do better. We have great goals and poor performance. And it brings me back to being God-centered once again, where it says, you are loved, so loved. It's not based on what you know or how well you've been doing or how bright you are or how many people you've brought to the Lord or how many people you've invited this week. He wraps his arms around you and says, Beloved, my child, I love you. So love you. I showed you, and I'm telling you, and I want you. That's where I want you to focus: is the love I've given to you, not what others are saying about you, not what you think you should be doing. Just focus on me and what I've done for you. And when you do those things, as we've said over and over, 
your expression of love will come out. And all those things you should be doing, you ought to be doing, as we'll look in a minute, you will do. Because your spiritual health is based on we also ought to love one another. You know, you would think logically it would say, since God so loved you, you also ought to love him. Well, yeah, yeah, that just goes without saying, doesn't it? But what doesn't go without saying, and he has to say it, is so we also ought to love one another. God loved you when you were unlovable. So he says, now, love the unlovable. You have some unlovable people in your life? I don't, but I know some of you do. Yeah, we do. Love that unlovable person. God love was shown when we sinned against him. And so we were to show God love to people who sinned against us. And these two words are both emphatic. So and we also. There, there's an emphasis here where he says the we also is based on the so. Since God so loved you, and that's the way it's meant to be heard. Since he so loved you. We also ought to love one another. See, that's the point. Because God so loved you, we too should do the same thing to one another. Because we are God-loved, we can God-love. God's love is practical. It's active. It's intentional. You know, God did a new and a great thing when he became a man. When he became a man, that goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1 of this book. He who was light in love embodied himself in the person of Jesus, in humanity. In Jesus, as we read about him, as we read the Gospels, we see light, we see love. Everything he does exposes God to us. That's the light. It exposes us to ourselves, too. And everything he did was out of love. Everything. And so you look at those things, and sometimes you have to try and figure it out and say, I just don't see it. But it's okay. You keep studying. You keep reading. You keep thinking about it. And you keep remembering everything he did was light and love. And then God does a new and another new and great thing in us. He embodies himself in us. He abides in us. And he says, now you are light. You are love. Jesus had a choice. He had the free will to choose whether or not he would do the Father's will. Book of John, he talks about that. He says, you know, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I, I just do my Father's will. And we too have that free choice. You can choose whether to do the Father's will or not. And what's his will? Love one another. That's it. What do you want me to do, God? Love one another. That's it. Because out of that, all the other things you should be doing are going to happen, okay? You're going to do the right thing. But if you miss this one, you miss it all. You miss this one, you miss everything. I don't care if you baptize 70,000 people in a day. If you miss this, you miss it all. And if you think I'm making that up, read 1 Corinthians 13. I don't care if you can speak to 10,000 people in eight different languages. 
doesn't matter. It's zero. That's what the word means. It's a zero if you don't love. And God doesn't, John, God doesn't give us any specifics here. He doesn't say this is what you do to demonstrate love. And I think the reason is this. It's not limited to a few things. It's your life. I can't tell you how to love. Because I don't know what you do. I don't know what time you wake up. I don't know where you go. I don't know who you interact with. I don't know what goes on in your job. I don't know who your spouse is. I might know their name, but I don't know anything about the interaction with that. I don't know how your kids are behind closed doors. I don't know any of those things very well. You do. And that's where the love has to be put in practice. That's where you do it. And so you have to look at your life right now and say, at this point in my life, when I open my eyes for the first time in the morning, and I see my husband with bad breath and hair all over the place. Some of husbands have hair all over the place. <laughs> I'm looking at both of us. <laughs> and it's not a pretty sight, but that's the first person you love every morning. And those children, we had grandkids over whatever night it was, Friday night. And they wake you up at 6 in the morning and full of energy. I want to go play. You just want to say, just stay away from me until I drink my first cup of coffee. <laughs> what you want to do. But what's love say? Only you can answer that. Beginning with those closest to you, extending to the larger Christian family, extending to the world, love one another. Let me read this last verse, this paraphrase. This is how I try to put it in the in a quick sentence, in a quick whatever this is, verse. Dear to God, loved ones of God, since God loved us in such an excessive and intense manner, it goes without saying that we should, in turn, excessively and intensely express and show God love to one another. That's it. It's that simple and that's hard. And it's that hard. It's a lifelong process of learning it. But here's the wonderful thing. If you're in Christ, God has given you the power to love. The power to love. And you can do it. If you're outside of Christ, we want to love you into Christ. We want to tell you this is the best place in the world to be. Not this building, not these individuals, but in Christ. Living in Him. And Him living in us. And we want to invite you, if your faith is at the point where you're ready to make that stand, make that step, our elders will be here to assist you. If you are in Christ, in this body, and you have not been loving like you should, and none of us have, some of us need to go to one another and express that love. Some of us just need to repent in our hearts and say, I need to change my life. I need to start loving the way I need to. Whatever your need is, respond in faith, respond to the call of God as we stand and as we sing.